Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life, Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers through, through the years. Uh, an evening where we really have had the opportunity over the months to engage history, just not in a series of chronological events, but really rooting this evening in the great Christian thinkers that we might appreciate those men and women who have shaped and formed uh, Christian history. And so it really has been a great joy for me to engage history uh, through the eyes of the great Christian thinkers. And I have been doing this for the most part with John O'Hara. So John, great to have you with me another evening. Great to be here, Joe, as always. So John, an unsuspecting figure for us this evening, huh? St. Joseph Volotsk. Now, a, a Russian Orthodox saint, I want to say something here before we engage our principal subject matter. You know, last week I was going through uh, the 16th century, the 17th century, trying to get a, a sense of where we were going, knowing that next week and the following week we were going to take up Unipero Ser, um, certainly John with his canonization coming up and a lot of questions about who he was, especially here in the state of California. I thought it would be good to take him up for a few weeks, and, and I will do that starting next week. I know George Wing will be joining me and John you potentially as well. But as I was going through this, just trying to get a sense of where we were going over the next few months, it was September 9th last week, and I was just combing through uh, the figures, and I saw St. Joseph Velasque. And lo and behold, uh, unbeknownst to me on September 9th, I was looking him up, and his feast day is on September 9th. So that just was kind of a Wow, you know, that kind of took my breath away a little bit. And then I looked closer, and he died September 9th, the year 1515. So 500 years to the day I was reading about this man. And I thought, okay, I really need to take a closer look. And as I was looking uh, closer, did I find uh, so many gems that would be good to talk about, huh? Uh, to the least of which will be what we talk about on our radio program this evening. Certainly the importance of genuine repentance because he fought against this heresy where there was a really a reduction in the importance of being sincere about a repentance and, and so many other things. But I just wanted to share that because for our listening audience, they might hear St. Joseph Volotsk and think, what the, who is this guy? You know, he is a fascinating man, a fascinating saint, and certainly one we can talk about. I'm sure many of our listening audience are wondering when we were finally going to get to St. Joseph Volox. <laughs> well, here is your day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was born in 1440 and died September the 9th, 1515. So he lived a good 75 years in, in Russia. And uh, he came from a quite wealthy family, and uh, they, they made their money in the land, Russia being an agrarian country for a long time sure. there and thereafter. Sure. And he was educated at a monastery, at, at the local monastery of Baroques, apparently he was quite bright. He learned how to read quickly, and um, he was tonsured at the age of 19. And um, 
uh, he went on to write a quite a well-known book called The Enlightener. He got involved in politics, not as a, an actor, but there were czars in Russia. I'm not quite sure what was going on in Russia politically. There were czars and there were powerful landlords, and these landlords and the czars kind of had their little hassles. I mean, that's quite familiar with this semi-feudal period. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, he had some things to say about that, but mainly he was a monk. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did not have worldly ambitions. Uh, he, he had some writings, I think, that had to do with politics. And mainly he was a writer and uh, and a holy man. Okay, that, those are just some of the thumbnails about his life. You know, John, you mentioned the book, The Enlightener. Well, what was that book about? Well, Greek Orthodox Russia was losing its sense of Christianity. They were being routed towards Judaism. Uh, in fact, there was one group by the name of Kosars who sought to convert him to Judaism. And what he found in many of his encounters with groups like the Kozars was this de-emphasis on the importance of repentance, this de-emphasis on the importance of sin. So what does he do? Well, he, he takes a close look at their doctrine, and he says, you know, we have to go back to our Christian roots, huh? We have to remember what the Holy Trinity is about. We have to remember what the Incarnation is about, which of course is a revelation of the Holy Trinity, and remember why He came. He came to save us. Now, what does the word Jesus mean? Yeshua, God saves. God saves us, saves us from what? Well, sin, right? So, in his treatment, in the Enlightener, he gets into the Trinity, he gets into the redemption, he gets into uh, other aspects, other doctrines of our faith. But what was at the heart of it? A remembrance of who we are as Christians and our need for God's mercy. Because with, with the Jewish faith, there was an emphasis on the letter of the law and a de-emphasis on the spirit of the law. There is an emphasis on the externals and a de-emphasis on the internals. And so, by treating the Trinity, uh, the greatness of the Incarnation, as a revelation of God's love and the inner life of the Trinity, He wanted to reroute us to our beginnings and have us appreciate the importance of that cry, Abba, Father, and our need for God and our need to be contrite. You may want to consult Galatians, where the law and the Spirit are taken up with St. Paul. Mm -hmm. Just a little aside, Orthodox... The Greek and the, the Roman, they're the Greek and we'll call it the Catholic world, had, had trouble for quite some time, and there was a big split around 1054. They didn't think it would be permanent, but it has turned out to be permanent. And there is no doctrinal difference that I'm aware of between Orthodox and Catholic. The difference is Catholics have a pope who resides in St. Peter's, and the Orthodox do not. We have the Greek Orthodox, we have the Russian Orthodox, and there are other Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And they have their shall we say, head person, mm -hmm. but Patriarch. it's not a pope. Yeah, patriarch, yeah. right, mm -hmm. not a pope. So that is the difference. I am aware of no doctrinal differences, and the sacraments of the Orthodox Church are real sacraments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was right, John, that St. Joseph of Alasque would return his people to their Christian roots, huh? He would be constant in going to the essence of the gospel message, the essence of the message that would come to us from the evangelists. I mean, what do we hear from Mark 1-4? John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what St. Joseph of Alosk wanted his people to understand. Uh, what does the word repentance mean? Right, remember it comes from the Greek metanoia, which literally translates as a change of mind or a new way of thinking. 
a conversion of the heart away from sin and towards God. It was a deeper understanding that the new covenant, in contrast to the old covenant, was about the grace of God. So there was an emphasis on this genuine repentance so as to open the heart up to a new life in God, a new life in His grace. This brings up a hugely important topic in my own confusion, hmm. because as, ca- as a Catholic, I have the sacrament of confession. Mm-hmm. And when I confess a serious sin and I receive absolution, it is taken away. Supposing I don't have that opportunity, supposing I'm not Catholic or a fallen away Catholic, and death hovers, mm-hmm. what kind of repentance do you need? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. God, I'm sorry if I even believe in you or, you know, I don't know. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I am really confused about this. What type of repentance does it make? Now, I mentioned on this show uh, the people in purgatory who made a battlefield. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, God, and yeah. made it into the lowest rung of purgatory. Okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Good, good, good for him. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I, I really don't know if what what really constitutes repentance in the eyes of God, you just can't say, I'm sorry, God, I think you need to be a lot deeper than that. Yeah, and that's why the word genuine is so important, because out from a deeper understanding of what it means to be genuine, which really is being honest with our shortcomings, being honest with the fact that we need God, and out from that desire to change for the better, and that desire to change is the resolve, right? And certainly when you start talking about the sacrament of confession, uh, one must speak to the importance of uh, the grace that comes with that sacrament. When we talk about mercy, I think in the same breath you have to have the word justice, Mm -hmm. because... Mm -hmm. If you have mercy without justice, you just kind of have a whatever. But and if you have justice without mercy, you know, you maybe we'll have a dictatorship. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you have to have the two of them together. Yeah. And without the one, you don't have the other. And therefore, God is just and God is merciful. He is both yep. to the yep. max. And what does that mean when you say, I'm sorry, what really does that mean in your heart? Yeah, John, to talk about mercy, I think it would... Uh, be good to go into sacred scripture. And this is what John Paul II, of course, does in his great encyclical on rich and mercy. Um, in this encyclical, John Paul II breaks open this twofold vision of mercy and really gets into the heart, I think, of what we want to get at this evening as it relates to mercy. He wrote this, the Bible tradition and the whole faith life of the people of God provide unique proof that mercy is the greatest of the attributes and perfections of God. So, how is that so? Well, the Old Testament understanding of mercy provides for us the foundation necessary to really grab hold of what we're talking about here, John. And as John Paul II explains in this great encyclical, Rich in Mercy, there are two principal words found in the Old Testament that translate as God's mercy. First, there is the word hased, which means steadfast love, a blood bond of love. In effect, covenant love, love defined not by the exchange of things, but persons, he and me, and I and him. For this reason, we can say someone who has the attribute of said John, is someone you can always count on, someone who never lets you down. And as many Old Testament scholars have noted, this love is what we define as a dependable love, a holy love, huh? a love that rescues. Essentially, 
we are to see hesed as containing the meaning of faithfulness to oneself, to one's own promises and commitments to others. Now, the second term for God's mercy in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word rahamim. This word is defined as tenderness, compassionate love, which can be best understood as a love that springs forth from the innermost place of God's being. It's interesting. The root word to rahamim is a word that means abdominal region or womb. Okay, so this is why we speak of the rahamim as God's tenderness, God's gentle touch. Someone who has rahamim is someone who feels for your plight and is moved with compassion to help you. This word is often used in conjunction with hesed because together, for John Paul II, they orchestrate the symphony of that chief attribute of God's love, mercy. Incidentally, the Latin word for mercy, misericordiae, which translates sorrowful at heart, is really the glove ball fit to the Old Testament vision of mercy. How? Well, because it is the movement of the heart that is shaken at the sight of the other's plight and moves to do something, going out of itself and towards the other. It is the act of love of God that wants to fill every void and darkness in the human heart with life and joy, okay? So what's important for us to understand is mercy as the chief attribute of God and John, how we are called to share in this. And we only do so by looking at our sin objectively and realizing our need for God. Uh, amen to that. Now, John, I know we were talking earlier. You had a, a great quote from Shakespeare, huh? Yeah. Now, remember uh, one of his masterpieces of The Merchant of Venice. And let me just take about 45 seconds of sure. our listeners' time to go through yeah. Portia's speech on mercy. And as we take a look at mercy, notice we have both mercy and justice. Here it is. The quality of mercy is not strain. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that giveth and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. The scepter shows the force of temporal power, the, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above the sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. An earthy power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Mm. Therefore, Shylock, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. Mm. So there, is, there we have, you know, what makes a king a king? Yes, he has his crown, but it's the mercy that comes out. That's what really gives power its majesty. Mm. And you have to have mercy and you have to have justice. And it is an attribute of God. Mm. And, Amen. Yeah. I love that that line, mercy seasons justice. Yes. Uh, I mean, mercy gives the life-like flavor to justice. Yes. And right, this is why justice is based in, in God's mercy, because God's mercy is what flavors it. Yeah, and um, you know, we're going to have the year of mercy coming up beginning December the 8th. We don't know yes. we want to get into that. Yes. But it's going to be a, going to get a lot of to-do. And yeah. St. Joseph, our saint today, did mention that. Mercy just isn't, hey, it's okay. You know, as I had mentioned in the beginning, John, the Jews were making some serious inroads 
in Greek Orthodox Russia, right? And as such, it was bringing about a lot of confusion. St. Joseph's deep concern was that it was not only leading people into heresy, but really missing the essence of why Christ came, that he came to us uh, to restore us in this new sonship, this new life in God. And uh, this was a travesty. This was a travesty. Yeah, if you, you know, if, if the Jewish people in, in Russia were making inroads, Christ is not a divine character. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. therefore we have, you know, that's a big issue. I mean, yes, there are forefathers and they, and they led the way for us. But unless Christ is God, we, we're not Christians. Yeah, Judaism is the parent of the Catholic Church to the extent that Christ fulfills the promise. And in doing so, draws us into the new and everlasting covenant, because the covenant that God established with Moses was national. The covenant that God established with Christ was international, right? And of course, the word Catholic coming from the Greek katholike means universal, or we can say international. And what was the sign of the old covenant? Passover. What was the sign of the new covenant? new Passover, of course, in the Eucharist. So this was very close to the heart of St. Joseph. And let me say as we talk about this, John, because I believe this to be very important, especially as we reflect into the life of St. Joseph. You were earlier talking about him as a monk. I just said, you know, he had these things on his fingertips. And did he ever? One of the things that St. Joseph was known for was his memory. Uh He had this robust memory where he literally had anything and everything he had read on his fingertips. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about this thing he calls intellectual purity. What does he mean by that, intellectual purity? Well, he wants us to see that the intellect is to serve something, right? Anyone can study something and recall whatever it is that they studied, right? But when we recall that which belongs to God in a pure spirit, the dirtiness, the the, the muck and the mire and the murkiness is not going to get in the way, right? So if we are pure in heart, when we go to recall the stuff of God, and certainly St. Joseph was versed in the Church Fathers, he was versed in the Councils, he was versed in Sacred Scripture, he had this at his fingertips, but for him, it was always obedient to the unconventional ways of God, which is what we call wisdom, right? Uh. Wisdom. So intellect was serving wisdom. I always turn to the temptation in the desert when I think about this, John, because for maybe some of our listeners, we say, well, really, what is the difference between the intellect and wisdom? Well, let us go to the temptation in the desert. Here you have the Son of God fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, He looks weak on the outside. He looks overwhelmed on the outside. This is what Satan sees. This is what his intellect sees. Satan has supreme intellect. He has supreme intellect, right? But what he doesn't see is what is on the inside. He doesn't see the unconventional ways, which is what? Well, he has intentionally, he has intentionally been fasting to purify himself, right? So, Satan sees, ah, now is the time to swoop, and of course we have the three temptations. But what he doesn't realize, John, is that he's been fasting by choice for 40 days. In Christ's three responses to the three temptations, we have eternal wisdom. 
Satan may have a supreme intellect, but he doesn't have wisdom because wisdom always starts on bended knee, you see. And to our listeners, I say, John, let us think about this for a second, because we can have a muscle-bound intellect. We can have a robust memory. But if it is not obedient to prayer on bended knee, what do we really have? If it is something that is clouded by bad habits, a sin, what do we really have? St. Joseph would tell us nothing. Intellect is, is a good in of itself, a great thing, right? But to the extent that it serves the ways of God. An interesting thing you just said about Christ had purity, God on bended knee. I mean, that image got me. Jesus Christ, God himself, on bended knee. Satan, yeah. no, he does not bend his knee. And just a little aside, <clears throat> when you go to see a psychiatrist, one of the first questions is going to be, what did you do when you were a little kid? because what you are now is formed by your past. Oh, yes. And that's yes. where our memory is. Yes. And yes. how pure we are right now has a coloration from our past. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that is part of who we are. Our yes. memory is a yes. big part. I mean, we have memory, we have intellect, but memory is a big part of who we are today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very important, John. And so this whole discussion is quite relevant to his work in Leitner and Repentance, because it really is, it really is seeing the importance of what it means to be poor in God and what it means to be on Bedini, mindful that the Hebrew word for being poor in God, the Anawim, literally means on Bedini or bent over. Uh. Of course, the Son of God was the Anawim of God par excellence, right? On bended knee, constantly withdrawing in prayer. Satan could not understand that. We are at our best um, in our imitation of God to the extent that we start our days on bended knee. Yeah. And when we do so, we realize, John, that we are in need of God to be genuine, mindful that uh, our native ways, our natural ways, those ways which belong to the human nature, will always come up short if we do not lean into God. St. Joseph of Velotsky wanted us to see this. He wanted us to see this. And I've got to imagine a man of his stature as it relates to just not his popularity, as certainly, as we have talked about in the past, John, we see this with all the saints, you know, holiness, it has a way of attracting, right? Yes. Like light and the darkness, we're just drawn to it. Um, people were drawn to him. He knew well, for all of his intellect, that it was only as good as it opened himself up to the greatness of God. And this is why he pens what he pens in the Enlightener, and he really draws out his argument against the Judaizers with this emphasis on the need to be contrite, with this emphasis on who Jesus Christ was, why he came to save us from our sin, and in light of the greatness of who he was, the greatness of his love, we should be constantly uh, living with a penitential heart. I want to remember Luke's uh, gospel of the prodigal son, mm. and the nature of that son's repentance. Mm. See, he had sinned against his father, and as Andy comes home, I mean, he's desperate physically and, and also spiritually as well. As he comes home, he is forgiven. And it's that kind of repentance. You know, when I think of repentance, I want to picture him and his situation in my mind. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. what, you know, he was humiliated and just, ugh, 
Yeah. And it must yeah. have been hard for him to come home and say, yeah, oh, I really messed up. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. and, uh, here he's coming home to the people that he know. Yeah. But um, that's what repentance is. It is, it isn't fun, but it is cleansing. Mm-hmm. It is that moment, you know, in Peter's epistle, depart from me, Lord, yeah. for I am a sinful man. Huh? Yeah. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Contrition awakens the soul in its depth. Uh, it awakens the soul in its depth, and it helps us realize our need for God. And this is why it must be genuine, John. This is why we should never be caught up with with appearances or the externals. Be sure to mean what you say and say what you mean. Yes. Right? That's what it means to be genuine. Yes. Right? To say, I'm sorry, is, is to mean it. And when we've sinned, we need to go to God and say, I am sorry. And of course, in the Catholic Church and the sacramental life, we do this in the sacrament of confession. Uh, um, very important. Well, John, I'm looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. I don't know if you had any closing thoughts. No, but I'm glad we got to this saint. And uh, Amen. St. Joseph Velosk, a, a, a holy man like all the other saints we've talked about, and a man who had a deep sense, a deep sense of what sonship was about and our need to lean into God. I mean, that is really what I got from so much of what was being uh, written about him. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.